You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I'd invite you to open your Bibles in connection with this afternoon's sermon. First of all, to Luke chapter 4. Part of the sermon this afternoon will be dealing with the petition in which we ask God not to lead us into temptation. And so we'll read the other sections in the gospel according to Luke, which speak about temptation as they're very informative for us in understanding what our Lord Jesus Christ would have us pray. So first of all, Luke chapter 4, the verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, let this stone uh, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me... It will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. We turn further in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 22, the verses 39 through 46. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from his prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. We turn now to our text from the word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. The last Lord's Day in the Heidelberg Catechism and the last one dealing with the Lord's Prayer the prayer that our Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray. What is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh do not cease to attack us. Will you therefore uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that in the spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies 
until we finally obtain the complete victory. How do you conclude your prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all this we ask of you because as our king, having power over all things, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because not we, but your holy name, should so receive all glory forever. What does the word Amen mean? Amen means it is true and certain. For God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of Him. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the experience of prayer, the experience of praying, of going through prayer, and how you are affected by that, involves both a humbling realism and a confident trust. It at one time humbles you, shows you how weak you really are, but at the same time it it strengthens you, it builds you up, and it gives you confidence in the very words that you are praying. As you begin to pray the petitions in the Lord's Prayer by asking that that God's name would be glorified and that His kingdom would come and that His will would be done. It strikes you how lofty that goal is. How lofty it is. But you realize how how high those goals are, that God's name would be glorified, that His kingdom would come, that His will would be done. You realize how high they are because our world is so completely disengaged from that message. Because that is not what's happening in our world. And even we ourselves, Christians, struggle to obediently follow those very words that we pray. They leave our mouth and immediately we begin to struggle against actually doing that in our lives. That's the humbling realism. But at the same time, we recognize that we don't pray the prayer to ourselves and we don't pray it on our own strength, but we pray to God. And so that humbling realism gives way to confident trust. It's not on our power or for our sake that we pray these things, but we pray them to God that God would make what we pray a reality in our lives And in this world. And this trust only grows in the prayer taught by our Lord Jesus Christ as it comes to an end. In the last petition, in the doxology, through to the final end, the Lord Jesus teaches us to end our prayers in confident faith. And confident faith, that's what brings those last three elements of the prayer. The last petition, the doxology at the end, and the amen. Teaches us to end our prayer in confident faith. In the first place, we're to end our prayer confident of the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Confident of the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to take a little bit of explaining for you to see how that connects with the petition that in fact says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
In Luke chapter 11, verse 4, is where we find this last part of the Lord's Prayer, where the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray, and lead us not into temptation. And he stops there. The version that Matthew gives for the reasons that Matthew has, of course, the, the Gospels are different. Each writer has different reasons for including different things. So Matthew also includes the next phrase, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, have you ever wondered about that phrase given in Luke, and lead us not into temptation? Because it's a curious phrase. And this is why it's curious. Are are we implying then that God actually can tempt us when we pray that? And doesn't James say, let no one say that God is tempting me? So what does that mean? Should we use a different word then besides the word temptation? That phrase can be a little bit confusing and lead us not into temptation. And so we have to dig a little deeper. I've already mentioned one passage in James. You have to dig a little deeper to understand what's going on. And, and there's lots that we could dig into. This afternoon what we're going to do is dig into the Gospel of Luke and see how this Gospel and the times that it mentions temptation teaches us about this very petition. We gain, in fact, tremendous insight into this petition of the Lord's Prayer. The first time that temptation is spoken about in this Gospel of Luke is in Luke chapter 4, which we read together. The account of the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's consider first that event. In light of the sixth petition, the language used in chapter Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 2 is quite striking. So the the petition is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now listen to Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Leading, temptation, and evil one. They're all there. But rather than not being led into temptation, our Lord Jesus was led directly there. Directly into the desert. Directly into the wilderness. Directly into the place where the devil would tempt him. Why? What's going on there? Why is the Holy Spirit doing this to our Lord Jesus Christ? The answer to that question, there's many facets to it, certainly. But one part of it is this. Jesus was led out into that desert to be tempted because it was necessary for him to endure that temptation for the sake of God's people. It was necessary for Jesus to endure that temptation for the sake of God's people. You see, the people of Israel had at one time been led out into the wilderness. They were led out into the desert by the Spirit of God. After they had lived in Egypt, and after all of those plagues in Egypt, they were led out of Egypt into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And there in the desert... They were put to the test. 
We read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, where Moses says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So Israel had been led out into the desert, and now the Lord Jesus is led out into the desert. Or do you know what the net result of the testing was for the people of Israel? As they were led through the desert, that God would test them to see what was in their heart? Well, Moses doesn't go very long in the book of Deuteronomy before he tells the people exactly what happened. From the day that you left Egypt until you arrived here, and they're, they're standing on the banks of the Jordan as this book is delivered to them, you have been rebellious against the Lord. From the day you left Egypt until now, you've been rebellious. You've been failing the test that was given to you. Mission not accomplished. Now, what was going on in the desert there? God was testing his people. God was testing his people. Where was Satan? Well, Satan was there as well. He was tempting God's people. Satan was enticing them to evil. God is holy. He does not entice to evil. But Satan does entice to evil. So what God intends as a test, a test to be passed, Satan is doing everything he can to tempt, to entice to evil, that the people of God would fail. That's the difference between a temptation and a test. Between what the devil does and what God does. God gives a test to reveal what is good in our hearts. But the people revealed that there was not good in their hearts. And so they fell to the enticements of Satan. And this failure to resist the temptations of, of Satan, of the evil one, and to prove that their, their hearts were singularly devoted to him becomes the pattern of Israel's history. So they failed in the desert and they fail every subsequent time they are tested. When it comes right down to it, when their hearts are revealed, they give over to the enticements to evil. Now we could recount all of the times they failed in the Old Testament, but we don't have time for that this afternoon. But it's there. Read through the Old Testament. You don't read very far before you see the people of Israel falling into sin. And so as the Lord Jesus comes into the world as the Messiah of the people of God, as the Messiah, then he himself identifies with those people of Israel. He he goes out into the wilderness. He goes out to be tested and to be tempted. But yet, he's different. Because unlike every Israelite before him, he, the Messiah, the leader of God's people, is singularly devoted to God, his Father in heaven. He heads out into the desert, led by God, just like the Israelites. And through reliance on the word of God and on the spirit of God, the Lord Jesus resists the temptations of Satan and remains singularly devoted to God. So the Lord Jesus identifies with the people of God and then he passes the test and he does not fall into temptation. 
So when we pray, lead us not into temptation. Part of what we are praying is lead us, O Lord, to Jesus Christ, who knows how to overcome the temptations of Satan. But Satan was not done with him yet. In Luke chapter 4, verse 13, we read, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left until an opportune time. We don't read about temptations again in the Gospel of Luke until we come to the Lord's Prayer. And then we don't read again about temptations until we come to Luke chapter 22, another well-known event in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives to pray. That too is striking. Luke chapter 22, at verse 39 Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him there. The Lord Jesus led his disciples to the Mount of Olives to pray. And once there, he said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then our Lord Jesus Christ himself proceeded to focus himself through prayer on doing the will of God. And he had to focus himself in prayer so much at that point because so great was the burden of the curse and of the sins upon him that his human nature was beginning to break down. His body was beginning to fail under the weight of our sins that he was carrying upon him. And so he asked for help. He didn't see how he could go on, but God sent an angel to strengthen him so that he could carry out the last section, the last part of his task on earth. That task, as Satan is busy rallying his forces, rallying the Jews, using Judas to carry out a full assault on the Lord Jesus Christ, is also putting incredible strain on the disciples. They are also bearing this heavy weight, and they're being tempted to deny Jesus, to disown him, and to leave him. So great is the burden that they fall asleep rather than pray. And what happens? The Lord Jesus says to his disciples, pray that you won't fall into temptation. What happens to them? They fall into temptation. Luke goes on to record how one disciple betrays Jesus with a kiss. Another betrays him three times, Peter. And all of them leave his side and flee away in fear. They all fall short. They all fall into temptation, except for one. Except for Jesus. The temptation is not too much for him to bear. And he endures the scorn and the shame of the cross. And he dies for the salvation of God's people. Having identified himself with God's people being the Messiah, he endures the the scorn and the shame and goes to the cross. And he dies for God's people there. He dies for their sins. Through his death on the cross, the Lord Jesus delivers God's people from the evil one. Now, putting these together and going back to that petition in Luke 11, what is Jesus teaching the disciples to pray? I think it becomes quite clear from this gospel. Lead me not into temptation 
means lead me to Jesus Christ. Lead me to the one who has himself withstood those temptations and lead me to the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross where I could not go. He went. So lead me to him. Lead me to entrust myself to the one who did not fall so that entrusting myself entirely to him by faith, I will not fall to the temptations of Satan, but will by the atoning death of Jesus Christ be delivered from the evil one. I don't suggest that that's all that's implied with this petition, but it's certainly at the center Our Lord Jesus Christ, in this prayer, urges us to ask the Father to lead us to Him and to lead us to His victory over the evil one. And this actually gets borne out in another passage that Luke writes about temptation. This time, not from the book of Luke. We don't find this word here again. But we would go then to Acts, to Acts chapter 20, where Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. In verse 19 there, he says this, just one phrase that captures it. I served the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested. And the word there is the same one as tempted in Luke. Although I was severely tempted by the plots of the Jews. It's borne out for me, Paul says. I was tempted, but I followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I didn't fall into that temptation. So he was led by the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ to overcome that temptation to give in and to give up that had happened time and time and time and time and time again to God's people. Instead of giving in and giving up, the Lord strengthened him for the task. As we pray this petition to God the Father who works all things for our good, we pray with confidence when we look to Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of this petition, who is faithful even when he was tempted, and in whom we are delivered from the power of the evil one. And so we pray that petition confident in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We move on now to the doxology, where we pray confident in God's purposes. The doxology of our prayer, which is for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, if you think about this, the theme of this afternoon's sermon, where it says the Lord Jesus teaches us to end our prayers in confident faith, you may question whether the Lord Jesus even taught us to pray for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Luke does not include this doxology in his prayer. Uh, the NIV does not include this doxology as Matthew records the prayer, but puts it in a footnote where it notes that most early manuscripts don't have the doxology. Looking at the evidence, we're left to conclude that, in a way, the Lord Jesus Christ probably did not include this doxology. And so, did the Lord Jesus Christ really teach us to pray this? Does it have a proper place at the end of our prayers? Well, it most certainly does. And even from the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we mean? Well, this is a doxology at the end of a prayer. And 
from what we know about Jewish prayers during that time, they also ended their prayers in a doxology. A a well-known doxology of those days was, Blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. That was a doxology that the Jews in those, in Jesus' days used at the end of their prayers. But even more, we find many doxologies throughout the New Testament. Listen to how the, the words of the, these doxologies in the New Testament ring with the conclusion that we reach at the end of the Lord's Prayer. 1 Timothy 1 verse 17. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 4 verse 11. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Jude 25. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. There's many, many, many more examples of that in the New Testament. As well in the Old Testament. We can go to the prayer that David, King David, spoke when the people of Israel had brought their gifts to the temple. Remember, David wasn't allowed to build the temple, but he did gather the gifts from the people of God to build the temple. And at the conclusion of that, in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, he prays this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, O God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Another beautiful doxology. These are all doxologies that were taught to pray from the word of God. And from whom do receive, do we receive the word of God? We receive it from our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself, through the pattern found in the Old Testament and, and emphasized strongly in the New Testament, teaches us to pray. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. He certainly teaches us to acknowledge the kingdom and the power and the glory of our heavenly father. And to give him all praise through this doxology forever. And then we conclude our prayers with Amen. Confident that God hears us. Now what does the word Amen mean? A very brief explanation of the word Amen is given in the Old Testament, Numbers 5.22. Where the context is very different than that of prayer, we must say. But upon swearing an oath with an accompanying curse... Uh, the woman who who's, who is hearing that curse is to say, Amen, so be it. Amen, so be it. The context of the word Amen at the end of the Lord's Prayer is very different, but the bare meaning is the same. So be it. It's essentially the definition we have in the catechism. It is true and certain. Now, have you ever thought about saying this at the end of your prayer? Because saying the Amen at the end of your prayer, it is true and certain, can come off as a little bit presumptuous, can it? In fact, we have the habit, we have the the tradition of saying the Amen together as a congregation in our worship service. 
at the end of God's greeting, at the beginning of the worship service, and following the blessing at the end. Has that ever struck you as strange? Have you ever wondered why we do that? Why do we say it all together? Does it seem odd to you that after receiving God's perfect word, that we would feel the need to validate it? So be it. Amen. Probably some people have the feeling that that we, when we state amen at the end of the blessing, then we're somehow granting credibility to what has been said. Yes, that's true, because we've said it's true. Is that why we say amen? It's not. Have you ever had that same feeling in prayer? Why do we say the word amen at the end of our prayer? If you think, for example, of how our Lord Jesus Christ used the word amen, he used the word amen very often in his teaching. And he said the word amen a lot because he was saying that every word that came out of his mouth was the word of God. He was saying that every word that he spoke was an authoritative word. Amen. So be it. You cannot change it. The Lord Jesus has spoken. Now, do we say amen for the same reason as Jesus? Can we? Well, we don't. We don't. But it's certainly connected. The amen that we state is a declaration of confidence in what we've prayed. It's a declaration of confidence, not because we have prayed it, but because of Jesus Christ and because of the promises of God. We say amen, first of all, because of Jesus Christ. We say amen at the end of our prayer for the same reason that we say our father at the beginning of our prayer. Because we've been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because we've been redeemed and set apart by him. And therefore, we have Jesus Christ as our great high priest at the right hand of God. When we pray as those united to Jesus Christ, we can be confident that Jesus Christ is going to take our prayers and he's going to sanctify them. Everything won't have been said perfectly, but he will take our prayer and he'll bring it perfectly before the throne of our father in heaven so that it can be perfectly heard and perfectly received and perfectly responded to. We don't pray amen for our sake. We pray amen for Jesus' sake. We say, this is true, not because I've said it, even in spite of what I've said, but because Jesus Christ is at your right hand in heaven and he's my savior. So we say amen because Jesus Christ is our savior and our great high priest. We also say amen at the end of our prayers because it has been our earnest desire to pray according to the will and the promises of God. God has promised to glorify his name, to bring his kingdom, and to do his will. He has promised that it will happen. He has promised that he will provide us for our needs, that he will forgive us for our sins, and that he will protect us from the evil one. He's promised us all of this not for our sake, but for the sake of Jesus Christ, his son, our precious savior. 
through faith in Jesus Christ, we can know that those promises, all of those petitions that we list in the Lord's Prayer, and many more, are guaranteed. So be it. It is true and certain. God will deliver on His promises. And so we can confidently say, Amen. Here are the beautiful words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. This afternoon, we've remembered some of those great and precious promises to deliver us and that God's is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. All of which are yes in Jesus Christ, together with all of the promises taught us in this prayer, and every promise delivered to us through the word of God. And so it is fitting for us to join our voices together as we pray as the church, in the confidence and faith, and say in the close of our prayer, that beautiful word. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.